Could you talk for another? <laughs> yeah, I think you could. Most Don't definitely. Me. I'll bring it. <laughs> um, it's not that we don't have things to talk about. It's just that uh, we've been busy. It's been a busy summer. Yeah. You've been, you're all over the place. I mean, seriously, you, you have a bunch of field days. you got so much. It's the extension life, on. yeah. It's hard to be in the office sometimes. Extension I mean, it's life. not hard. I'm just not in the office because yeah. I'm in the field. And this is go time for everything. Yeah. And I think you said something to me the other day where I said, yeah, it seems kind of like a quiet summer. You're like, no, no, it's not a quiet summer. It's, there are plenty of pests. In the soybean world, it seems to be just an excellent year for a mixed pest. Defoliators, some aphids, hoppers. Yeah. It's well, let's just pretty, jump right into it. Okay. Insect updates. Okay. What are we hearing? What are you hearing? Um, probably still the main thing I'm hearing about statewide is thistle caterpillar. So many questions about activity this year as far as how many generations are there? Um, you know, when are they going to stop <laughs> defoliating my beans? And uh, what, why does this thistle caterpillar look black and slimy? So we had uh, all these kinds of questions. Black and slimy. Well, slimy. so what I know, and which is not a lot about thistle caterpillar, is that they're, they don't overwinter here. They migrate here, you know, every summer. But the intensity of this year is way higher than normal. And why is that? I have no idea. Um, but during the last week of July and the first part of August, I started to get questions, a lot of photos of these thistle caterpillars that didn't look quite right. So some of them looked puffy, powdery. Others looked like a deflated balloon. And so we were seeing what I think are animal pathogens yeah. just naturally occurring. Yeah. That, that became active with the right environmental conditions. And so, to the best of my knowledge, we had some fungal pathogens and then that were kind of creating these puffy white ones. And then the deflated uh, black slimy ones, I think, were uh, virus. Oh, and so, nice. in some fields, uh, they, you know, almost overnight, they said uh, anecdotally that, you know, populations kind of crashed because of these animal pathogens, which is great. But we're still seeing a lot of adults flying around. Yeah, so uh, thistle caterpillars grow up to be painted lady butterflies. Yeah. And um, in urban uh, settings, like around Ames and, um, and in parks, they're everywhere. Oh, man. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's remarkable. Uh, and it's kind of pretty. You know? I mean, it's beautiful. Butterflies, but My backyard is like orange with butterflies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's beautiful. But, it, um, but they came from somewhere, and thistle caterpillar, you know, the... The thistle is the, the oh, what's the technical term for the seedy that are thought to be um, uh, defense against predation, you know, that kind of stick up on these caterpillars that they develop. But the painted lady is this butterfly. And when you get enough of these, you, uh, in one field, sure, you get defoliation, but you also get a population that can harbor an epizootic of some disease-causing agent, whether it be a fungus, virus, bacteria, 
Yeah, and, and you just described classic symptoms of a disease outbreak. Mm-hmm. And it happens so quickly. Oftentimes you need the right abiotic conditions, right? You need some humid, warm, but not too warm conditions for the fungus to, um, if it's a fungus, to persist. It's all yeah. about the disease triangle. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. That's... Yeah, and to answer the, the second most common question is, you know, will we have a third generation? Uh, shout out to Megan Anderson. She's a Iowa State University field agronomist in central Iowa. And she sent me some fantastic photos yesterday that showed thistle caterpillar eggs this week. So the adults that we've seen are continuing to mate and lay eggs to what degree that maybe third partial generation will become active. I don't know, but there's still plenty of time in the season. There's plenty of soybeans to feed on. So we might see activity in August when we typically don't see thistle caterpillar. So interesting month yeah. about to happen. And that's one defoliator. Yep. But the, what's the second, I'm, I'm kind of leading you, what's the second most abundant defoliator you've seen this summer in soybeans? Um, well, there are a variety of caterpillars, uh, kind of a mixed bag, but I would say second most common would be Japanese beetle. The JB? It's uh, common to see, and we've, we've kind of hit that peak emergence as far as adults this year, so I think what we have is what we have, but they're going to continue to mate and feed, and they're highly mobile, aggregated, so when you see one, you're going to see, you know, a lot of their best friends with them, so they're also active and swimming right now. Plus one to the party. Plus one. Yeah. Plus five. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and about now, they'll be mating, so you might see these, like, big congregations of males globbing on to a female, Mm -hmm. and that's that they're producing that skeletonized feeding that is very distinctive of that species. Yeah. Um, again, in urban environments, I'm seeing it on all the trees. We, we have lost yeah. a bunch of leaves on lindens. They seem to prefer that. Um, yeah. I have a couple of maples, even some of my crab apples. Like in um, early fall, you yeah. see these brown leaves that are falling. Oh, yeah, and all my ornamentals are ravaged. They're just a lot of sticks. So the only thing that's surviving is a spearmint in my yard, and that's where the painted ladies, and I have a lot of these cool black wasps that are visiting, and bumblebees, so they Um, don't care for spearmint. So caterpillars, Japanese beetles, what Mm -hmm. other insect updates for soy? Um, Well, I would say that in some areas, particularly in northern Iowa, we're starting to see soybean aphid activity pick up in all my small plot research and that's even true in central Iowa which is not something that we see every year so compared to last week I would say that the percent of plants infested is increasing dramatically and also the number of aphids per plant and so let's talk about that increase because the mm-hmm. students were reporting this morning you know between this week and last week they've gone from what less than 50 percent to 80 percent of yeah. plants have aphids mm-hmm. and the average number of aphids sounded like from the students it's still quite variable yeah uh, but on average some fields were around a hundred mm-hmm. but not all some were yeah uh, in the tens and twenties mm-hmm. um, what's your gut feeling about that uh, my gut uh, just looking at the weather forecast looks good for aphids I think it's supposed to be kind of 80s over the weekend and next week so that's great for these aphids. They're going to continue to do their thing and I would expect that some fields are starting to reach threshold as beans are kind of going into full pot set 
in the next seven to ten days, and that there will be some fields that will exceed the economic threshold of two fifty. Yeah, kind of mid August. Mm-hmm. And that's um, yeah, that's not unusual. Although it does seem, for, I, 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 we talked to Brian Lang uh, up in Northeast Iowa, and he's said as of a week ago, very little, if any, aphids mm-hmm. in that part of the state. And, you know, still some of our plots uh, in central Iowa, very few, if any, but real spotty, right? I mean, still getting re- reports of fields, even though some don't have, others do, yeah. and, are, and are reaching thresholds. So. Yeah, uh, it's worth it's worth the time to be out and scouting in soybean, not only because of soybean aphid, but, you know, we still have Japanese beetle, just caterpillars, and I think even the bean leaf fetal numbers look pretty good that for this time of year. So you're going to have a mix of chewing bean pests and sucking gets pests. A shout out. Yeah. <laughs> well, the one thing that I'm wondering about is uh, I, I we were talking about updates. We were talking with a, a group of entomologists, applied entomologists, on Wednesday. We're part of a, um, a project funded through the Iowa Soybean Association, and we were checking in on you know what are they seeing in Minnesota, South Dakota. Do you mean the North Central Soybean Research Program? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not Iowa Soybean. Oh, well, thank you. Um, that's right. It, it's through NCSRB. Okay. Um, and um, and the, um, the reports we were coming back from our collaborators uh, in, in that project were not a lot of aphids. Yeah. Very low. And they were saying that, at least in these plots that we had the experiment running, probably not going to need to, not going to be able to spray at threshold because those aren't looking like they're going to reach thresholds. Yeah. Um, and then I asked, well, what about just around the area? Um, a lot of them were saying, yeah, probably not seeing a need to spray, although applications of insecticide had been or were going on because farmers were tank mixing a insecticide in with a fungicide application that would be going on, what, around R1, R2? So I guess the question is, if you did that, that tank mix, that spray, would you get protection from the four insects that we just talked about? Thistle caterpillar, Japanese beetles, soybean aphid, bean leaf beetle. Would you get efficacy at the time of the application? Yes. I mean, unless you had pyrethroid-resistant aphids, okay. which is a possibility. So that's one. So if you if you used a pyrethroid and you had pyrethroid-resistant aphids, that mm-hmm. tank mix may not do anything for you. But what about just the timing? So you sprayed last week. Mm-hmm. What is that? First week of August. And you sprayed... Mm-hmm. You said people are spraying R1, R2. Yeah. That's a couple weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh, a couple weeks ago even. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, talking with people north of us, so maybe they're not as far along. What I'm getting at is, is that preventative approach going to, what do you think, provide protection for these this, this community of insects? Um, you mean sprayed prophylactically? Yeah. Uh, I would not expect that the products that we use would have anything more than a seven to ten day residual. And part of that is, of course, all the new foliage that's put on by soybean is not going to be protected. These products are not systemic, and so that all the new foliage is going to be unprotected. And I don't expect these products to have killing power you know, a month after they've been sprayed. Mm-hmm. So um, if they were truly making an R1, R2 application and the insect activity is picking up now, I don't know if, I don't know. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I wouldn't expect to have 
uh, residual to last that long. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could see where, you know, if there was a, a population, say, of thistle caterpillars in that field uh, at R1, R2, yeah, you probably knocked it back. Maybe you knocked it back to the point where it can't recover, you know, even though eggs are still being laid and all. Donometry colonization goes on. We don't know a lot about that yeah. insect uh, in soybeans in this area. Um, soybean aphids, well, you know, one of the things that the students told us this morning was seeing a lot of winged aphids. Yeah. So there's a chance for recolonization mm -hmm. to occur. Um, so I... I don't know, I'm kind of uh, on the fence here thinking, yeah, you, you probably did some damage to insects that were in that field, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But uh, are you out of the woods? Would you still need maybe a second application that is better timed to the population of the insects in that field? Mm -hmm. Don't know. Don't know without scouting and, and you know. Yeah. And I, I can't say for caterpillars or beetles, but I did a residual testing study for <laughs> soybean aphid that yeah. let's just say it's not out in the it's not out in the literature yet. But, but what I do know is that treated foliage could not kill aphids seven days after. Mm -hmm. So they did not it did not have enough killing power seven days after the application what, to kill an aphid. What products were those? Uh, I use Warrior. Warrior. So um, a bi yeah. yeah. And so if it couldn't kill an aphid I'm not sure it could kill a thistle caterpillar or a Japanese beetle. I don't know though. Yeah. That's just my that's my perception. That's why I asked for the gut. Yep. Right? Yep. All right. I've got a lot of gut to share. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, interesting, uh, challenging year, super challenging year. Yeah, and and, and plants are smaller than they typically are because they got a later start, so that it's a smaller plant with more insects feeding on it, so I take that into consideration as well. And things are just running a little bit behind as far as degree days, and so we just, it's a kind of, it's a challenging summer to manage pest, for sure. Yeah, and then you gotta think about what price are you gonna get for those soybeans, and yep. that's a whole other discussion. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, it's all number, uh, another topic here, abnormally dry. Mm. Yeah, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, they put out a map, uh, of course, in the U.S., but we're fairly most interested in Iowa. And some of the counties, I would say maybe about a third of the counties of Iowa are considered D0 or abnormally dry. So D, uh, abnormally dry on their scale is um, like the lowest yes. level of, of drought yes. uh, or dryness. Mm -hmm. um, but it does cover a big chunk of, what would you call that, southwest, maybe just west? Central Iowa? Central. Yeah. East Central. I'm sorry, East, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh. So what's what's the opposite of drought? Just kidding. <laughs> That's a callback to a previous episode. Yeah, and I'm surprised that that infertile crescent, the very south um, central part of the state, is not considered abnormally dry because just my conversations from field agronomists in that area is that they really, really need the rain. And so oh, um, there's some pasture and grasslands that are not doing well in those areas. Yeah, I've noticed that around central Iowa, we're, we're, we're dry. I don't yeah. know if it's like risk of losing yield dry, yeah. but... Um, and even some of the lawns, like the urban areas, right? Yeah. The lawns are starting to crisp up a little bit. Yeah, mm -hmm. although you get these pop-up thunderstorms that it's amazing how, you know, you get quite a bit of rain in a quick period and, and things mm -hmm. kind of bounce back a little yeah. bit. But that's typical summer. That's not too unusual. Yeah. Um, any other kind of agronomic 
factors, features um, going on? Well, if we just want to step away from soybean just for a little bit, um, I should say that Aaron Gassman, he's our corn rootworm entomologist, I think as you like to say, uh, he started to make uh, field visits this week for poor performance of BT, and they're kind of peppered throughout Iowa, and uh, they would be for fields that are grown with smart stacks. Mm. And so he's done this for a few years. He's confirmed resistance in uh, the pyramided hybrids for a couple of years, but um, you know he's starting. Farmers are starting to notice down corn, and so he's he's making those collections. And it's the same recipe over and over again. People think they have a problem. Yeah. Aaron visits, yeah. collects adults, and a year later says, "Yeah, you have a problem." Yeah. I mean, it, it's been that way for ten years. So, just to let people know that, you know, all these fields, there's additional twenty, thirty fields every year that you know he's confirmed resistance, and so it's yeah. incredible. And- uh, when you say smart stacks and pyramids, you're talking now about rootworms that have resistance to multiple BT toxins. Yeah. And not just one, so this is uh, alone, but this is a, a rootworm population that survives on corn that produces multiple toxins, and that's a bummer, right? Yeah, and I, sh- I, should, I should clarify, this is for western corn rootworm. Yeah. Not right. noticing any issues with northern corn rootworm Although a couple folks in at North Dakota State re- confirm resistance to northern corn rootworm, we haven't found that in Iowa or anywhere else yet. But the western corn rootworm tends to be the most common rootworm in Iowa. It has been for the last couple of years. Yeah, the ratio is definitely skewed to yeah. westerns. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that's corn. <laughs> that's pretty much the talk of the town. Other than there's been uh, a good number of corn earworm moving into the Midwest, and so. I would just, they're easy to find in conventional, or like sweet corn. Right. And we had a, a couple of fields with resistance in BT corn last year in Iowa. So that's to also corn earworm. Yeah. How about corn borer? Not in Iowa. Not in, oh, oh. But there, there's a strain in Canada that is resistant to uh, one of the BT traits. Uh-huh. A confirmed resistant last year. Uh, but it's not close to us. It's, I, I think it's in Nova Scotia. Oh, that's quite far. Yeah, okay. it's quite far. And it's a different strain. It's a different, sorry, race. We have a different race here in the majority of the Corn Belt. So uh, when we use race to describe corn borer, is that we're talking about the, the um, subpopulations that um, the females communicate differently? I think so, To yeah. attract males. Yeah. And mm-hmm. theirs is, yeah, distinct from yeah. ours. They have a Canadian accent, so it sounds different. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah our our uh, Iowa corn borer is just that they don't, they don't hear it. They're like... Oofta. <laughs> Did she just say boot? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, does that pass for humor? In the bug world, heck yes. <laughs> kills. Kills at the ESA <laughs> meetings. Uh, okay, you want, uh, you want to talk a little trivia? Heck yes. So uh, we're kind of spiraling away from soybeans. We talked about corn. Um, I want to take us a little bit further. Um, I'm not the best with words, but I was trying to frame this like a, uh, uh, what's that, Jeopardy question, all right? And I've got three clues for you. I'm going to go with the most obscure clue first. Of course. All right, and then we'll get more and more specific. Okay. Um, and this first one is, is you always make fun of me, and you say I, I, I bring up these pop culture trivia. Yeah, I never know. What you're talking and about. And this is, this, is, this is one of those. Okay. Uh, but after you answer the question, um, I'll, I'll give you a little backstory because kind of I think it's kind of a fun story. Um, 
So, uh, quote, this voracious, unstoppable bug is killing off vineyards. Do you want me to guess? Yeah, the, yeah this is the title from a recently uh, uh, published Wired magazine article. Glassy wing sharpshooter? Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That okay. is very close. I will say that is very close, but that is incorrect. You ready for your second clue? Okay. All right, those guessing at home, hold off on the buzzers. Let's give Aaron a chance. Uh, its preferred host is the Tree of Heaven. Japanese beetle? Uh, getting a little bit further away. Oh. <laughs> getting a little bit further away. Uh, Shoot. But still in the, in the, in the right ballpark. Uh, and then your third and final clue. This is an invasive species first discovered in Pennsylvania. Spotted lanternfly? Yes. Bing, 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 bing. Okay, bing. okay. <laughs> Have a winner. Okay. Yeah. Uh, spotted, sp spotted, oh, spotted lanternfly, Lycorma delicatula. Okay. Yeah. This is a invasive species. It hasn't reached Iowa yet. Not I got yet. It. I got it. Um, it's, it's a beautiful insect. It's absolutely gorgeous. Stunning. Yes. Uh, and, and pretty robust in size, unlike, say, a soybean aphid. Uh, but as Wired Magazine described it, Voracious, unstoppable bug. Very challenging to manage yeah. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, Polyphagous, destructive, doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have any natural enemies that feed on it. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it's part of what a phenomenon, uh, I don't know if uh, we've talked about it on the podcast, maybe I've talked to you about it, called invasional meltdown. What does that mean? Invasional meltdown means when one in exotic species arrives and established in a new place like, oh, I don't know, America, uh, it makes it easier for future invasions of other species to occur. So the uh, Tree of Heaven, Altissima, I can't speak Latin. Anyway, Tree of Heaven is a um, species of tree that is native to China that was brought to the United States uh, back well, 100 plus years ago as mm -hmm. uh, ornamental. Um, it's the tree, it is the tree species that is the subject uh, of the title, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you... No. It was a kid's book, uh, popular in the 50s and 60s. Popular. I wasn't born yet. I know, but it's still Just found kidding. In, in libraries. Um, still recommended for kids to read. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a tenacious tree. It grows under a lot of very severe conditions, like Brooklyn. And um, its arrival and establishment predates the lanternfly and several other species of insects, like um, what's that stink bug? The marmorated marmorated stink bug also yeah. likes tree of heaven. Mm -hmm. So once that plant is here, now all these other invasives can establish and 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 go off and do damage to our plants, like grapes and. Like with the marmorated stink bug, corn and soybeans. Yeah. So, um, kind of bad news bears. Um, why am I talking about it here? Well, um, you know how I like to surf the internet. Mm. I would surf in the internet, and do kids still call it that? That is not surf. Surf the internet. I don't think they. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, um, but I was 
I, I came across this article uh, in Wired magazine published on August 2nd at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I posted it on Facebook. I said, oh, man, I hope this never comes to Iowa. Shared it with all my Iowa buddies. And a buddy from Michigan, Rufus Isaac, shout out to the small fruit entomologist there. He said, uh, right article, wrong picture. So maybe we can link this. And, sure. Uh, the article has a picture of a lanternfly, but is not the spotted lanternfly. Come on. <laughs> and it's... Uh, I was like, as soon as he put that in my uh, Facebook comments, I was like, oh, oh my God, yeah. I felt so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I got to be in taxonomy. What can I say? So uh, can I add to your fit? Yeah. This is a, a callback to Eric Clifton. Do you remember him? Yeah, graduate first, student. First yeah. PhD student. Yeah. Um, he's doing a postdoc in Cornell uh, with Ann Hayek, and he got hired to do an animopathogen survey for Asian longhorn beetle. But because of the activity, another invasive, another invasive. Yeah. But because of the activity and interest in spotter and lanternfly, he has been doing some additional research and looking at animal pathogens for that pest. Oh, very good. So different. his plant, not plant pathology, his pathogen skills yeah. uh, for culturing different kinds of things, it's spilling over into all these invasives. So oh, yeah. right place, right time. Yeah, uh, and cool, Eric. Know, Call, I mean, this is, you know, it's all connected, man. Um, mm-hmm. Talked about endopathogens. Oh, for the disease thistle causing, caterpillar. Yeah, thistle yeah. caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Um, not limited to native species. Can right. be an effective tool for... Um, they don't care. Yeah. Give me a body to, as a host. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, maybe we should end it on that. I think that's so. a little bit of hope. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Aaron. That yep. was fun. Thanks, Matt.